Content warning. This episode contains a discussion which touches on themes of violence, abuse, mental illness, and pedophilia. If these topics are triggering to you, there are timestamps in the episode description to skip over this section. Thank you, and enjoy the show. intro for this episode this book is nothing like the cartoon (laughs) welcome to recommended reading with jackson Heyman. i am jackson Heyman. i am once again joined by my good friend eddie passell and (laughs) let's just jump into it we are talking uh the new teen titans the judas contract the seminal teen titan story written by marv wolfman and george perez Pencils by George Perez. Um, and I I usually try to shout out like the inkers and the colorists and the letterers, but my research gave me like nothing about about them. And I I searched for so long. I know for sure that inks were done by Romeo Tangal, Dick Giordano, and Mike DiCarlo at various points in the in these issues, but nothing... which is surprising though. Like, surprising that there's so little information about those rules with how big of a story this is. It's huge. It is huge. And, like, there's nothing. But I feel like that's one of those things with, like, 80s comics and even before that. Like, some of the... You only know certain names. Like, you don't know Mm. everyone who worked on everything. Which, yeah. like, as someone who loves every aspect of all this stuff, I want to shout these people out, but y- you can't. It's the 80s. <laughs> it's the 80s. Nothing was um, as it is now, it seems. <laughs> it, it's the inkers? 80s. Inkers? Oh, yeah. who, needs, who, need, who needs to credit the inkers, right? It's not like their work is, is, is difficult. Everyone's getting paid an exposure. It's the 80s. <laughs> oh man so it'll be good for your career (laughs) so the the teen titans now everyone everyone who like knows superheroes or even people who just like grew up in the early 2000s and had cable knows the teen titans because you you have that incredible 2003 i believe cartoon that just i mean it was one of my first exposures to comics in general yeah no it for me that was my first ever introduction to dc period um which is why like i i think you and i have talked about this i have such a love for like the robins yeah and all of kind of like the sidekick characters which is why i adore young justice is because i my first introduction was teen titans so 
man, that show was like everything. People still list that as one of the greatest animated and shows of all time. It, it for good reason. It yeah. borrows it. I think for me personally, it scratches that same sort of borrowing from a lot of Eastern animation stuff that Avatar yes. The Last Airbender does, but yep. like in completely opposite directions. Like mm -hmm. if you see, if you say like Avatars, some of like the biggest Avatar influences are uh, martial arts films or even like Studio Ghibli stuff with like that breathtaking yeah. imagery. Teen Titans is full like anime like full yep. like shonen <laughs> anime like constant huge action sequences like bright colors crazy mm. edits if if teen titans and my hero academia had a crossover it would be hard to tell who is from what show exactly <laughs> but like that core teen titans group from the cartoon robin raven starfire cyborg beast boy like that group wasn't the original teen titans like I think right. everyone knows that the OG group was like Robin, Wonder Girl, Aqualad, and Speedy, yeah. Green Arrow's little boy. Green Arrow's <laughs> little boy. And let's not forget Changeling. Ah, uh, yes. I was gonna, I was gonna correct you, but that's right. You know, uh, <laughs> it's uh, yes. Changeling. Ah, uh, yes. He was never Beast Boy originally. Actually, he was a Changeling. So uh, created weird. for the created for the doom patrol mind you i that is that is one of those things that like everyone thinks that beast boy changeling um okay because of the confusion let's just call him by his real name garfield yeah <laughs> but in the in the in the comic they call him logan which had me tripped up for so long because I was thinking wolverine and i was like why are they referencing wolverine and i was like wait 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 they're referencing garfield but that's his last name so like his, I, I don't understand his, like his name his full name is garfield logan but because you don't want to associate him with the lasagna cat you gotta associate <laughs> him with the angry canadian uh, i mean i guess it's a bit more on brand but i wish that they had just discovered the nickname already of just gar like yeah. that's so much better. Like you, a lot of like later Teen Titans and Young Justice stuff, like do do slip into that Gar stuff, mm -hmm. and I that's what I usually refer to him as because I don't want to call him Garfield. Yeah. But they they it's it is a weird time for the this era of Teen Titans. They yeah, were no. created in the early '80s by this prolific comic duo of Marv Wolfman and George Perez. Marv Wolfman, yeah. one of those writers who worked for both DC and Marvel, created a ton of shit. Uh, lots, just lots of things. Um, he created Blade. He created half the characters in this story. Yeah. Um, and then, I mean, we have to take a couple minutes to just talk about how great George Perez is. Because... It's it's iconic in every way. George Perez, pro. So my, I've made it no secret that my favorite artist of all time is Jack Kirby, and yeah, because he's got those like huge, colorful, trippy images that, like I there are spreads from like New Gods and Eternals that just oh, they're they're some of like the most visceral pieces of artwork that I've ever seen. George Perez. He he really is a close second for me.
because yeah. where Jack Kirby can like draw these huge landscapes and depictions of trippy sci-fi stuff, George Perez can like draw characters. Yeah. There are tons and tons and tons and tons of spreads that he can do of like all these characters crammed into one panel. And yeah. like that's yeah. what I think a lot of people know him for is the guy who can draw these massive scenarios because uh, mm. this team of Wolfman and Perez did later worked on Crisis on Infinite Earths, the first event comic DC's big reboot of their multiverse. And there's just so many breathtaking images in there. And they were all done by George Perez. And yeah. And, and it's, it's so crazy to me how I had never read the Judas contract uh, OG story before now, but it's so crazy to me that the second I looked at the book without even seeing the credits, I knew it was George Perez's work because it's it's so iconic. Like it, like you said, in that Jack Kirby way of the second you see it, you know exactly who the artist is. Like sometimes it can get muddled nowadays because a lot of um, a lot of what would you call it um, studios or or comic book companies kind of want similar art styles for certain books. Yeah. Um, like I feel like the Batman books seem to have very, very similar art styles. Oh, but absolutely. With, with this, it was so, it's just so iconic to me. And I feel like um, it's kind of a testament to his work. Um, and it's just, it just reminded, it immediately it reminded me um, about like, I just got so melancholy when I opened the book because yeah. it just reminded me of like everything that Perez is going through right now. Yeah. Um, and um, uh, for anyone who doesn't know, Perez is dealing with, I dealing with a form of cancer and only has a few months left to live. And yeah. the outpouring of support and celebration for him and his family from the comics community has been incredible and i just yeah. i i knew i wanted to do something with george perez this year and when i was scheduling episodes for the entire year and i knew i wanted to do something titans or something one of his like big event stories that he drew mm -hmm. but i wanted i wanted to specifically look at some of his titans work because he and marv wolfman are one of those writer artist pairings that you sort of like they are those iconic pairings of the decade you have yeah. wolfman perez um chris claremont and dave cockram all over on uncanny x-men for this entire decade um yeah. i would say frank miller and klaus jansen too on daredevil like there are those mm -hmm. writer artist pairings that are just so iconic and you yeah. instantly yeah. clock, oh yeah, this is something these two did together. Yeah, and for me personally, I always think back when I think of like writer-artist pairings, I think back to um, definitely not the most loved stories, but like they were my first introduction with Straczynski and Ramita Jr. Oh yeah. And the first like introduction of Morlun and like all this crazy stuff. Like there's some just pairings that are unbreakable. And I feel like this is 
certainly like because we could talk for like hours about his work on infinity gauntlet yeah um all this other like iconic work but jla avengers work with the titans jla avengers the exactly the huge crossover that they tried to make get made for decades and (laughs) this is a this is a fact i know about perez he had like he went through he was always going to be the artist for jla avengers but because that book took decades to get into production he like renegotiated renegotiated contracts with other studios but he had a loophole in his contract to specifically be able to draw all of jla avengers yeah and And he's smart for it very smart yeah because that's a book that will also get covered here eventually um but perez is incredible um yeah wolfman very talented writer like i i i don't i i hesitate to call him one of my favorite writers in comics because i think there are creators who do his types of the same types of stories he writes better Mm -hmm. and there is specifically a contrast between him and perez and the chris claremont dave cochran pairing on uncanny x-men these books sort of both debuted at the exact same time. And right. and a lot of people were comparing Titans to Uncanny X-Men. Mm-hmm. And, Very similar. Yeah. Um, and that sort of comes into the basis of this story specifically. But um, the new Teen Titans, they were introduced in the early 80s by Wolfman Perez. Um, oh, t- quick... <laughs> side tangent about like how well these two work together um i was reading a bunch of interviews with them at the time of like writing new teen titans they were living about five blocks from each other oh my god so they would just go get lunch every every week and like have meetings and hash out all this stuff and then they'd go back and work on their separate stuff to the point where they were basically co-plotting the entire series together that's like, incredible. Perez had just as much of a story input as Wolfman did. Again, testament to how great Perez is and how how great Wolfman is, too. It's a testament to the partnership, and I think it's a testament to how comic book partnerships should typically be um, held. You know, because I feel like when you have both both artist and writer putting their creative minds into what is going to make up this story. I think you add a whole new depth to it because the artist knows certain things about these characters that the writer doesn't. And the writer knows certain things that the artist doesn't. And bringing those two together creates like this incredible third dimension that they did for the new Teen Titans. And I think that's why everyone totally fell in love with them. Yeah. It's because they had this, this, this layer of reality that was just so like genuine um and in reading reading the judas contract I, I i'll get into it later but i feel like all of the writing was so natural like everything felt like these are a bunch of teenagers just fighting crime and specifically shit yeah specifically a bunch <laughs> of 80s teenagers there's a bit yeah. <laughs> there's a bit of 80s slang there and uh, yeah <laughs> it's it's quick side tangent about like one of the 
but one of the non-huge things that are a bit that we have to unpack a bit with this story um the writing can be a bit 80s specifically like two yeah. men born in like born decades earlier writing teenagers in the 1980s yeah yeah and, and specifically i think there i did have some issues with beast boy's behavior oh my god yeah um, he we'll get into how this story handles beast boy changeling garfield wolverine whatever, whatever you want to call it. whatever you want to call but he is very presented as like he he comes off very selfish at the beginning of this story yeah and he also just does some questionable things where i'm like yeah buddy what's going on here man <laughs> <laughs> one of my favorite lines that we'll get into later is when their their tutor says garfield logan keep your paws off me and i mean literally Ooh. and i was like dude what <laughs> why are we yeah i know i know he's girl crazy but let's let's keep you know the unconsensual touching to a minimum gar like what's going on <laughs> there's also a lot of there's also a lot of like that classic 80s thought bubble monologuing that comes up yeah. a lot in this and mm -hmm. it's very much like it's an it was absolutely a great way to like deliver exposition and stuff and have characters just exposit through thoughts yeah but there's a whole sequence where like dick grayson is being chased down by deathstroke and he's just like oh my god what what it, what is going on i have what's what is happening to all my friends? How did the, how did Slade know about all these things that happened earlier in the story? Right. But who are the new Teen Titans? We've been talking yeah. about them for a while. But we, we gotta so, establish the the team. Yeah. <laughs> I this is the third time I've said this. I think they were they came out in the 1980s as like a revamp of the. Classic Teen Titans, which was really just, like, sidekicks of the big DC heroes at the time. Mm -hmm. And Wolfman and Perez, like, brought a few of them back. Specifically, Dick Grayson as Robin, Wally West yep. as Kid Flash, Donna Troy as... And, and Donna Troy as Wonder Girl. And then yeah. they brought in a couple characters of their own creation and also stole Beast Boy from the Doom Patrol. Yep. But Wolfman and Perez gave us... The great, the great trio of Starfire, Raven, and Cyborg. Yeah. And these are characters that you absolutely know if you know the Teen Titans cartoon. Because, like, those are the... the it's the core team. Like, you know yeah. so much about them. And you have Wolfman and Perez to thank for their creations. Yeah, characters so popular that one of them even got nixed from the titans and added to the justice league mm -hmm. which is crazy to me like when they when they announced that cyborg was no longer a titan and was going to be a core founding member of the league i was like whoa that's just a testament to how incredible these three like new characters were like yeah. they truly truly were special and, and in that same oh, universe-wide reboot where Cyborg was on the Justice League, they also plucked Starfire away and put her on a team with Jason Todd. Oh yeah. Uh yep. um The Outlaws. Sweeping declaration Red Hood and the Outlaws will never be covered on this podcast. <laughs> 
Side tangent. I hate Red Hood and the Outlaws. I, oh no! I hate the over-sexualization of Starfire. I hate Roy Harper's stupid trucker hat. I hate everything about Red Hood and the Outlaws. Oh but we're not God. talking about Red Hood and the Outlaws. We're talking about the new Teen Titans. Yes. And but the, the part of the story, though, does kind of usher in a world for Jason Todd. That's correct. That's correct. We This sort of does set up a reason why Jason Todd gets introduced later on. Yeah. Um, but last couple of things I want to talk about before we get into the meat of the story. Um, Wolfman, Wolfman and Perez also introduced a lot of the Titans' iconic villains. Like, we get a lot of stuff with Trigon, Raven's father. Yeah. And we get one of the villains of this story, Deathstroke, a.k.a. Slade Wilson, a.k.a. The Terminator, which they keep <laughs> calling him. And all, oh, I, yeah. I was so... Because I was like, oh yeah, his full title is Deathstroke, comma, The Terminator. But they just call him Terminator most of the time. Yeah, and I was like, did they even call him Deathstroke in... I don't think so. Story like he I... was just Terminator, and reading it, I was like, "This is so weird. Like, why would you, uh, why would you opt to call him the name of a character that's already established I instead of his think own term- original I don't name?" Think James Cameron's The Terminator had um, come out yet, but let me, The Terminator, nineteen eighty four. This was um, eighty. I think Nin- it was 80, right? Uh, well, these issues specifically were also 1984. Okay. <laughs> so we have, so I think we have an Ants Bugs Life thing going on. Oh, yeah. Definitely. Definitely. <laughs> so let's talk about what the Judas contract is really about. This is one of those seminal uh, t- New Teen Titans stories that runs throughout a couple of their issues. And it deals with, um, really, It you see a lot more from the villains than the heroes yeah. in this. You see it... <laughs> a lot from, you see a lot of Deathstrokes, and sl- you see a lot of Slade's dealings, and you see a lot of the central character of this book, Tara Markov. A.K.A. Tara. She is a 15-year-old girl with, like, the ability to control and mold the earth around her. She's 15? Yeah, she's 15. That's, that's one of the things we need to unpack. They treat her like a 22-year-old. That's the, okay, you know what? Um, There's gonna be content content warnings at the beginning of this episode, but... Again, straight up content warning for I just mental illness, pedophilia, a uh, lot of things. Um, lots of lots of just let's unpack the Terra stuff right now. Like just so off the bat, <laughs> the whole her the the whole story revolves around Terra, this character who was introduced a few issues before as a young girl who has no idea how to control her powers seeking help from the Titans. They Mm -hmm. help her out, and she eventually becomes a full-fledged member of the team, and 
like a member of the family. And right. it's revealed at the beginning of the Judas contract that she has been betraying them this whole time. She was never intentioned on coming in and being one of the Titans. She always had the intent of betraying them. And she has been using like contact lenses to record all of them, learn all their secret identities and give that information to Deathstroke. Yeah. And there's a lot of kind of questions about free will <laughs> by the end of it all. It's a lot and... of questions of free will. Um, again, content warning, another content warning, abuse and manipulation. You, right. You can't, you're never certain if Tara is being mind controlled or manipulated by Slade or... Yeah. If the, or if she really is this massive sociopath that only wants to murder these teenagers. Yeah, because there's, there's a whole bit at the end, right before she dies, where it, there's like a monologue about how she was born this way or mm -hmm. whatever, right? But then Beast Boy is super, super adamant that Deathstroke was behind it all. And Deathstroke was mind controlling her or just abusively manipulating her. Um, and it's it's really hard to tell. Like they don't set a line of of where it is. So it's really gray. Like you have no idea. I, I wrote down specifically like, so do we even know like did Tara die with free will? Like did what, what, what it's, it's, it's really difficult and it's, Part of the reason why I still do prefer the animated version, um, because it was very clear, that very clear what was happening, and it, yeah. the the ending just left me with more questions than when I started. Um, yeah, which was kind of a problem for me, but I also did prefer um, in the animated, how they waited for the reveal. I was a little confused why they revealed it so early in the books. Yeah. Um, <laughs> they, they reveal it in issue one and like the Terra you see with the Titans and infiltrating the Titans is nothing like the Terra you see interacting with Slade because right. the Terra that is with Slade is like heavily made up showing, a lot of cleavage, smoking a cigarette. Um, up, it is heavily implied and I think explicitly mentioned at one point that Slade and Tara are lovers. And yeah, there's at least implication of so. It is very fucked up. I, <sighs> we've really dug ourselves into a hole here, um, but it is you really there is a lot of morally gray stuff going on here specifically Very. with the character of tara because when she's putting on an act she's like a spunky teenager who like gets into fights a lot but her in reality her true motivations are extremely sociopathic she wants to murder the titans she specifically states that multiple times yeah and it's just there's just so much uh, it's it's i think it's a big story of it not aging well um because 
I'm pretty sure when it was revealed that she and him had had a sexual relationship that she was 16 i think and it was like played off like oh that's like the age of consent like but still like that timeliness isn't really an excuse it's still weird um and part of me was like oh what can you expect from a guy who wants to kill a bunch of teenagers but i was like yeah but still like it's not right (laughs) like it's not a lot is brought no. in question about like who is really controlling the game here. Is it mm-hmm. Slade manipulating Terra, or is Terra manipulating Slade? Because you get a lot of like her accusing him about like how he's gone soft and how he's getting old, and he's especially when we'll get to this, but Deathstroke's son comes into play even right. la- later in the book, and. She is furious and she dies basically trying to bring the earth on top of her and the Titans. Mm. And she is crushed. She basically ends up crushed. And there is a very tragic scene of a Beast Boy. Um, He's turned into an ape, a gorilla, and he's digging through the rubble to yeah. try and find her body. And you, this is a good transition into, like, Gar and Tara's relationship. Because that is one of those central things that is present in both this and the 2003 Teen Titans cartoon adaptation of this story. And it's arguably 80% of the reason the television one was so impactful. Because yeah. they spent a lot, a lot of time building that relationship up. Um but a big thing that I definitely wanted to discuss, especially on that that idea of free will mm-hmm. that we were initially talking about, was I had a lot of questions about whether or not she actually had feelings for Gar, or yeah. if it was all fake. Because there are moments where it does feel insanely real, and you feel almost like she kind of has a soft spot for Gar, and is in a mindset of like i know what i have to do but i almost don't want to do it now but then you also get parts of where it's like i'm gonna kill everyone yeah. so it's it's hard to tell like what do you think like i wanted to get your thoughts like do you think she actually had feelings for gar or was she just stringing him along to get closer i th- i am personally i think i am personally in the camp where she was stringing him along i think the 2003 Tara does shows a lot more of that human side Mm -hmm. and I but I but I think like there there are some quotes near the end that I think really cements this Tara as like a psychopath who just the the line specifically is like all my life I felt hate and I I think there is so much hate in this young girl that it turns to murder. And I really don't know if that can be a product of manipulation or abuse or mind control or any of these things. Or it's maybe nature, you know? So it's there's a, there's a question about nature versus nurture and whether or not people are born yeah. 
evil with these thoughts or if it, you know it, there's a lot of like really um psychological um questions that are really deep and also we haven't even gotten to the part where the the, the titans are involved in global politics either like yeah <laughs> yeah uh but there is with the in with like the inspiration for the character of Tara Mar markov I wanted to cite these this interview I found with Marv Wolfman. Um, in the interview, Wolfman talks about how, like, again, that comparison between the Teen Titans and the Uncanny X-Men. And mm. you see a lot of, like, the, the X-Men were beating them out in sales because it was the 80s and everyone was obsessed with the X-Men. And, but a lot of people were drawing comparisons to, like, this group of younger heroes all working together to sort of, and, and there were, they're both books were also getting heavily involved in like politics of the time and social change and being a force for social change. Right. And the X-Men introduced a character who is very dear to my heart, Kitty Pride, who is yeah. introduced as a young girl who has the ability to, like, phase through walls and phase through objects. And she comes to the Xavier School and basically is adopted by all the X-Men. Yeah. Kitty Pryde was very just this, like, happy-go-lucky person. This happy-go-lucky person. She is excited to be there. She really gets involved in everything with the X-Men. And Marv Wolfman and George Perez... They basically wanted to toy around with like that concept of like a younger character coming in and yeah. and basically being the complete opposite of Kitty Pride. What mm -hmm. if some what if someone had come in, basically become adopted by this team and was intending to murder them the whole time? Yeah, it's like if MCU Spider-Man actually wanted to just assassinate Tony Stark. Oh, yeah. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> like, what? <laughs> what's going on? Like, oh, man, it's it's definitely one of the most iconic stories of betrayal. Yeah. Um, and really, I think, changed the game in terms of dealing with traitors in comic books. Mm-hmm. Like, no longer was it, you know, like, a friend who was a traitor. It was, like, it was a team member, and it was family. Um, yeah. It, it really cemented this this idea that successful traitor stories are from the deepest, deepest point within the team. Um, and it just kind of, I think it reshaped how people tell those stories. Oh, yeah. Like, yeah. It's it's one of those tropes that I think like especially in super superhero comics every team mm -hmm. I think has at least one traitor story and yeah like they're done in a lot of different ways but I think this really cements it like it cements mm -hmm. what what will hurt these characters the most yeah how can we destroy them <laughs> how can we ruin their lives how Pretty can much. we make this how can we make this young green boy f feel the most trauma? Yeah, no, and it's it, it it's like 
it's just so much deeper than I expected an 80s comic book to be. Yeah. You know? Um, usually what I expect from 80s comic books is like what we had previously seen in Secret Wars. Oh, yeah. Um, but to get this, there was... It was so much more down to earth and so much more raw. Um, It's a very raw story. Yes. There's just a lot of moments of, of the team training together and just talking like normal teenagers. They they feel like like a family. They, they, they are a family. And when that family gets hurt, it really cuts deep. Yeah, truly. And like, I, I just how supportive they are of each other and, and like, um, I gotta point it out because I am a shill for Wally West. Um, when Wally leaves the Titans, they're all so supportive of him, and I thought that was such a sweet moment. How they were all like, "We're gonna miss you, man. Your family, like, yeah, but best of luck. Like, you're gonna do it. Do so good in college. Like, I was like, they really are like truly a family and um, seemingly unbreakable." Mm-hmm. But, you know, then we get Tara coming in and it, it's, I think it was really, at least for me, to my knowledge, one of the first comic book teams that actually felt like a family. You know, like Avengers was, we're coming together because we are, you know, Earth's Mightiest Heroes. We're mm-hmm. going to stop people where we have a mansion, you know, we're on payroll Justice League is like, oh, we have a duty to do this. Um, this is our role in society. But the Teen Titans, it's like, we don't have to be a team, but we love each other. Oh, so let's yeah. just do it, you know? So I feel like it was one of those first teams that actually felt like family. Yeah. And I think that's why this story was so successful. I think if you did this with the League or even like the Avengers, it would it, it would have been successful, but it would not have hit as hard as it does with the titans because teenagers read comic books they connect more to teenage i mean that's why spider-man is the most selling like highest selling superhero of all time because he's a teenager um every just you can project onto them so i think they honestly like i think it's in terms of knowing your brand and knowing your title think it was one of the smartest moves they could have ever done doing a story like this i don't think this is a story that could have worked with the justice league Mm -mm. i i say that as one of the as a diehard shill for the league but um you couldn't bring in a character like a brand you couldn't bring in a brand new character who needs help controlling their powers into the justice league without batman suspecting them as a traitor yeah. I think specifically because the bat of this group, Dick Grayson, is A, a bit more younger, a bit more stubborn, a bit more emotional, and all, also spends most of this time, like, away, this book away from the Titans. Yeah, but also they kind of make a point to mention that he is not interested in following the shadow of the Batman. Absolutely. Um, and you can really tell he's actively trying to kind of almost not let go of, but minimize his um, 
Batman tendencies. Um, we get the two best moments in this book, my, in my personal opinion, from that thing of Dick Grayson trying to distance himself from Bruce Wayne. Yeah, yeah. And I think this is a great place to talk about this, because this is one of the most iconic parts of the story. Oh, the yeah. retiring of the Robin mantle. Yeah. Um, and in the beginning of the story, Dick has this long, like right after Wally leaves, Dick mm. has this long monologue about like, he, he's in a different place of his life now. He spent yeah. most of his childhood running around with Bruce dressed, dressed in short pants. And it's time for a change. Mm -hmm. He doesn't know where he's going to go next. He, for now, he doesn't have a code name. For now, he's just yeah. Dick Grayson. I loved that, truly. Like, I loved that he, that they waited. You know, like, I, I thought for a minute that they were just going to announce Nightwing then and there. But they really gave it time to settle um, and kind of build up to that big reveal. And I he, loved that. He oh. is Dick Grayson for most of this book. When he's, like, hunted down by Slade... He yep. is, it is civilian garb. Yeah. Well, Slade just, like, crashes through his window. Slade shows He's up like... at his apartment. <laughs> and then Dick Grayson's like, uh, how did you, how did you get here? I'm <laughs> just wondering. <laughs> um, it's crazy, dude. Oh, man. Like, and, and I think that, I think that that's something that is so important to this story is the evolution into Nightwing. Yeah. Um, because I feel like the team almost, or like the storytelling matures with Dick Grayson. You know, as Dick Grayson grows into Nightwing, the tone of the stories being told shifts as well. You know, like, to fight a traitor, uh, a family member, he can't be Robin. He has to mature into Nightwing, and I thought that that was really, really cool. You know, like I, it just, I, I feel like they made that decision of like, if we're gonna tell a story this serious, like we need to kind of graduate um, him from Robin because this isn't a story for Robin. This is a story for Dick Grayson, yes. and he needs to be his own yes. thing. Like this is his family. This is his, like, I mean, like, Batman will always be his family, but he is the Batman of this team. Like, he, uh, yeah. they, they are his family. They are his, like, siblings. And, and I think it was so important that for him that he stepped up like that. And I thought it was just such a great pairing to, to put Night, the Nightwing reveal in this story. Like, I thought it was just so smart. I don't know if it was intentional or not. I'm I'm assuming that it is because I think it was the creative team is so smart. Yeah. Um, but um, I really loved that. Like, say what you will about the Nightwing costume. Hey, I think that hey, the storytelling okay. itself was. This is incredible. this is where we talk about this is where we talk about this. Okay. <laughs> um, there is a thing you texted me yesterday last night before we before <laughs> we got before we were recording oh. that I just want to make sure we address. Um. There is um, the scene where he basically retires the Robin mantle. 
also basically includes him metaf- metaphorically and literally stripping away the Robin mantle yep. by taking off his costume piece by piece. Yep. <laughs> and there's a point for a couple of panels where he is just standing with his friends in a singular green unitard. <laughs> and everyone's just like, you gotta get a better costume. You... Yeah, they even call him short pants. Yeah, they call him short or... pants. I was like, dude, he's just standing in like just an oversized thong. And I'm like, <laughs> why are you wearing that? Like, dude, like when he's like fully done, like it's not even like shorts. It's like all the way. It's a it's a jacket. Like I was like, whoa, it is. Like, it really goes to show, like, how how short Robin's pants were <laughs> in from, like, the 30s to the 80s. It makes me very, very, very grateful for the evolution of the Robin costume. Absolutely. Like, it's, even, like, Jason Todd's costume isn't like that. Like Jason Todd, yeah, because Jason Todd's was, I think... I'll have to look. I think he at least has pants. Yeah, he at least had, like, some sort of shorts, I think. Um, I'm, I'm pretty... Oh, no, 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 he had he had full pants. He still had, like, the the underwearish line, but it didn't stop there. It, he had yeah. green, like, yeah, leggings. Yeah, that, that is what I... However, I am also looking at a couple of images where it's the exact same as Dick Grayson. I think, I think it's because he wore dick grayson's costume for that's right that's right Um, segueing to dick grayson's other wacky costume um disco nightwing we get we get the reveal um as he's being after he's being chased by deathstroke after he like figures out everything that's going on he realizes all his friends have been captured he's got to go in with this other character that we haven't mentioned yet but we'll get to him he's got to go in and he's like he's he's talking about like how he's been coming up with names and ideas and costumes and he's like I found the one that's stuck. And we get the first Nightwing costume yeah. which collectively referred to by many people as Disco Wing. Yep. You get the thigh-high blue light baby blue boots. Yep. The um <laughs> almost like and it's almost like a tracksuit but with like yeah. an extremely popped collar. Yeah. I love it. I love I I, I love the disco wing a, suit. It's such a testament to the 80s. And I think like it works for the sole reason that this is the 80s and like like the fact that like I just I just smiled. Like I didn't laugh. Like I I didn't think it was funny. I just I smiled cuz I was like that's so 80s. Like that's perfect for this book. It you leads know? into <laughs> like, the bird motif. He's got the feathers. Yeah, exactly. And I was I was I I actually did enjoy it. I thought it was wacky as as all get up, but I was like the 80s were wacky as all get up. Like this is hilarious it's and like fun. Right. You know. And um but it's I, still like as fun as it is, it still felt like a mature maturing moment yeah which to me i was so surprised i was like i feel like i should be laughing right now but i'm not like this feels like a big moment and i think that's a really big testament to um the writing 
Yeah. And like I, I could go on for so long about the evolution of Nightwing and how like in certain stories, like his choice to become Nightwing is so important. And I think this is one of them. Yeah. I, I do. I do think obviously I like later interpretations of the Nightwing costume because I think that's, I'm a sucker for just like sleek minimalist costume design and yeah. I think, like, his most recent outfits have been some of my favorites. Mm. But I love how goofy it looks and how important of a moment this is. Yeah. And it's just so fun. Yeah. It's, it's, I mean, it really is, like, this, this book, and I think it's another testament to how great this team was and why the titans blew up like they did like they have this sam raimi like balance of tone where they can go from an incredibly serious moment to a fun goofy moment with gar yeah and it feels fine it feels normal it doesn't feel jarring and that's something i loved about those sam raimi movies like they they took time for campiness but they also had these really mature moments and I think that it, it balances it really well. Like, really well. I was so impressed. Like, no um, matter how fucked up this story can get, and it, it gets fucked up, oh, like, yeah. we're, you're allowed to still have these moments of lighthearted fun. Mm -hmm. Like, one of my favorite little details, um, did you notice how um, when... Dick is trying to get to Titan's Tower after he's on the run from Slade. When so Titan's Tower is on the island and you have to take like a little raft to yeah. get to get to Titan's Tower like it's fucking Tom Sawyer Sawyer Island at Disney World. Oh my gosh. Yeah, and also something that I was taken aback by was like quick side note. Like I I had no idea that they didn't do Jump City at this time, and they just the Titans are just in Manhattan. Yeah, I had no idea. Like well, I had they, no. It said like Titans Tower in I Manhattan. Think for most at of their time in, I think they've always been a Manhattan team. And wow, I thought they had always been at least like Bloodhaven. Bloodhaven is like Dick's city. Bloodhaven is his own city. Wow interesting i never knew that they were a manhattan team i didn't even know manhattan existed in the dc universe i, I always thought know, it was like manhattan metropolis i specifically know manhattan exists in the dcu specifically because of like because this version of the titans is non-existent in the new 52 and which was mm -hmm. when i started reading dc comics specifically and so you get a like the, the teen titans in that universe is off on their own doing other things and it's tim drake is robin and some of these characters but not all of them mm -hmm. um but you get a couple of characters sort of just popping up in manhattan like static static makes his home in manhattan um firestorm hawkman mr terrific they oh, all wow. sort of just run around new york city and no one ever really pays attention to them oh my gosh yeah i didn't even think new york existed in the dc universe like i never even thought about that i always thought that new york was metropolis and um gotham was jersey can i can i do comics. a quick tangent about like 
the cities in the DC universe compared to yeah, I, like, I was literally gonna say like you never see so real cities. Coming back to JLA Avengers again, um, there is a there is an in universe explanation why like the Marvel Earth has like Manhattan and Los Angeles and like that's where all the superheroes are operating out of. Right. The explanation is that the DC Earth is slightly bigger. And so it allows for places like Metropolis and Gotham and Coast City and also countries like Kandak and Bialya and these other places that exist. Wait, wait, sorry. Are you telling me that like it's it works like everything that is in real life still exists, but there's just more. It's just more. No, there's just more space. There's just there's just the earth is like a little bit bigger oh my gosh so all these states and cities of the united states still exist with coast city with star city the border the borders are just a little bit bigger i had no idea i always (laughs) thought they were replacing cities nope nope it's did i break your brain today did i did i break your brain dude my brain is like melting I, I I always thought that they like replaced cities. Nope, uh, Manhattan. But it's just a bigger it, Earth. Like they're it's just, just bigger. <laughs> does that mean? Wait, wait, wait. By by the laws of physics, does that mean that humans are bigger on the DC universe I, Earth? I don't know. I think the simple realization is just that there's more space. I think that there's just more land mass in the DC Earth. That allows for would like, that mean gravity works differently too? Huh, dude, this is so weird. <laughs> it freaking me out because like even just a little bit of mass change changes the laws of physics and gravitational pull on that Earth so much. Oh my god! Wait, what? <laughs> this is a universe <laughs> where there are new gods. That's true. That's true. It's all fake. This is a so. universe where every religion exists. All the all the Greek gods, all the um you've got the divine spirit of vengeance running around. Um true. you've got new gods. Um the red death. Yeah. From a different universe, a multiverse exists. I I get what you're saying. Well, <laughs> maybe this is why um the DC multiverse also has a dark multiverse of a bunch of negative Earths where all, like, the famous storylines went bad. Oh, man. Oh. So much. It, this is where comic books just, like, can lose me. Like, there's so much, like, technicalities. So, like, oh, I gotta my. come back to the dark, the dark multiverse for a second. It was introduced in Dark Knight's Metal um, in 2017, and I have been reading Scott Snyder and Greg Capullo's Batman partially for this, but partially because I have become obsessed with how good it is. Mm. Um, but that was one of like their big cap-offs to their multi-year run on Batman. And they introduced the Dark Multiverse, and they also introduce a team of Batmen from that multiverse that have killed and taken the powers of various members of the Justice League. 
Batman No Way Home. Kind of, but you get things like The Murder Machine, which is Batman uploaded into Victor Stone's, um, his father's uh, consciousness and, like, the technology... Um, you get the Red Death. I'm sorry, like, what? <laughs> so, okay, so the Murder Machine. The Murder Machine So it's is, just Batman fused with every member of the yes, league. Yes, so the Murder Machine is Batman and Cyborg. Um, the Red Death is Batman. Um, I know Red Death. Dragging Barry Flash. Allen into the Speed Force. Yeah. Um, the Devastator is Batman um, injecting himself with a Doomsday Serum to kill Superman. Um, the Devastator is Batman making a deal with Ares to kill Wonder Woman. Um, I believe the Dawnbreaker is um, Batman... It, it, it's not even Batman. It is Bruce Wayne on the... When his parents are shot, he doesn't feel any fear, and a Green Lantern ring f- falls down from the sky, and he becomes the Dawnbreaker. You also get the Drowned, which is... Um, which is um, not even Bruce Wayne, Bryce Wayne. Um, she is, um, she is, she drowns, gets fused with like Atlantean cells, and basically drowns all of her Earth. <laughs> Have I broken you yet? Yes, yeah, because I've never like I, you know this. Like I've never gotten as deep into DC lore as I have with Marvel lore. So Wait. there's just so much. Does that mean you don't know who the Batman who laughs is? I've seen the Batman who laughs. Like I, I, it's a, I, I know it's a huge thing, and I've seen like I don't, I don't like panels. Batman who laughs, but I like the concept. Um, a, I, I don't know if I like the concept because I feel like it goes against what Batman yeah, is. Yeah, I don't know. That I, he'll <laughs> never break, and like that wouldn't happen. You know, that, like it's, it's so tough. Batman but, breaks. Batman gets I... infected with a Joker virus and kills his family and runs around the dark multiverse with um little fucked up Joker Robins. Dude, yeah, like I I've heard of it, but I've never read anything with Batman who laughs. Just because I I just don't get a chance to read DC as much <laughs> as I do because I'm trying to catch up on a ton of manga right now. Oh, I only yeah. read a bunch of Marvel. I don't recently. touch manga. I want to touch manga, but I don't. I don't at the moment. Oh my gosh! Um, so the Judas if contract. You're look, but if but if you're looking for a really really deep conversation, read Attack on Titan. That that's a lot of. I, I'm I'm not even lying. Like I I um, I just finished Attack on Titan, and there is a lot of. Um, Terra, in. Aaron Yeager. Like <laughs> they're huh? very similar characters. Okay. Very similar characters. Where like with like hate and many like there's a lot of cool stuff there. But anyways, back to the Judas contract. There's one last character I want to talk about that is introduced in this story, and that is uh Joe Wilson, aka Jericho, who is introduced as Deathstroke's son. And you delve a lot into the backstory of Deathstroke here. And, like, full disclosure, I am not a fan of Deathstroke. Like, I think he is a very, like, he's an abusive abusive father, for one, um, to all three of his kids. Um, 
But he also, like, I don't like that mercenary character trope. Like, I don't... Right. Like, I think the best thing Deathstroke's introduction did for comics was give us Deadpool. (laughs) Yep. Yeah. Yeah. Um, Um, No, but I, I, I definitely see what you mean. Like, I used to think... I mean, when I had just been watching, like, the shows, yes. I used to love Deathstroke. I used to be like, he's such a badass, like, yeah. um, uh, uh, antagonist. Like, he's perfect for the Titans. But then as, like, I got into, like, the comics, I was like, he is a horrible, horrible human being. Like, he doesn't even, like, level on villain. He is just, like, a bad person. Like, with the stuff he does to Terra and, like, all the other stuff he's done with to... with his daughter Rose, who gets introduced way later, all, in... all uh, underage. <laughs> like, it's just he's he's just a despicable person, and it's he is like, despicable. It's really, I don't like that they've trying been trying to push him as an antihero lately. I think he should stay a villain. Um, but you delve a lot into his backstory here: how he was like a soldier, how he met his wife. How, for a while, they were, like, a happy family, but then Deathstroke starts, well, Slade starts taking these mercenary jobs, and right. one of them ends up with um, their son, with Deathstroke and Adeline's son, Joseph, getting kidnapped, and he goes out on a rampage, and it ba- he saves his son, but not before they're able to partially slit Joseph's throat, yeah. and damage his vocal cords so he is a mute throughout the story and you which i think you get a character who is speaking with asl in comics and which is super cool and i think this is such a interesting character to for like this type of disability like not being able to speak and and but you also get his powers, which are the ability to possess people by making eye contact with them. And I and I think those powers are handled I I, lo- I love them because you get yeah. you get some cool ass scenes where he's trying to learn the abilities of the body he is inhabiting. And you also realize that he is he does not get any control over their like voice or thoughts. He just gets control over their movements. So you get the scene where like he possesses Slade's body and he's and Slade's like Joseph stop. Stop making me attack Terra. Stop making me save the Titans. Oh, and and when he introduces his powers to Nightwing. I thought it was hilarious. Nightwing just made his big intro and then he takes over Nightwing's body and makes him stumble around like a drunk and he's like, it's, I don't know what's coming on! It's it's like that trope of like a brain parasite in sci-fi hitching a ride onto somebody's body and having to learn how to pilot said body yes. at, in the moment. So you yeah. get a lot of like out of control stuff and I think he's such an interesting character I don't like his mutton chops, but that's just... Yeah, yeah. (laughs) That's just a... You know, George Perez, 99.9% of the time, you hit it out of the park. Yep. You're amazing. I don't like Jericho with mutton chops. It just... 
mutton chops just don't really look good. On a, on a teenager. Mutton chops it, yeah, don't look good on a teenager. Yeah, at least on a teenager. And the kind of hair that he has just doesn't work for it either. Like the blonde, curly hair, it just doesn't doesn't look good, man. Like it does not look good. Yeah. That's the only thing. That is the only thing I will say that the Titans live action show did better is that Jericho is... looks like a normal freaking teenager. The Titans, the Titans live action show, I have never seen it. I've only seen clips. Yeah. I don't, don't even like get me it. Started. Don't give me. I could literally, I could literally talk to you for an hour about every fundamental flaw within that show. Not even just from a Titans standpoint, but just an overall storytelling standpoint. Fuck Batman. But he says so dumb. He says fuck Batman. Uh... But now apparently, apparently they're doing the Red Hood stuff, and Batman is in the show now. I guess Batman's in the show, but you don't see his costume. Oh. You only see his costume in the dream sequence, but you never see his face in the costume. The Red Hood stuff was actually good for like an episode, and then it just got stupid. But like, also Hawk and Delph were there, and like... The team on the Titans show, I just don't like. I just don't like the team at all. I it, love Superboy. Because it tries to do like that core, this core new Team Titans thing, right? You get yeah. like Dick Hawk Grayson. And Dove, you get... I just have no interest in. You get Dick Grayson, you get Gar, you get Raven, you get Starfire, you get Connor Kent. Yeah, Superboy's just in it because Young Justice. Oh, and Crypto. Crypto's in it? Yeah, Crypto the Superdog is in it. Oh my god. He comes from the same facility that Connor Kent comes from. Oh my god. Crypto is a a dog clone of Superman. Oh my god. But also Hawk and Dove are there, and Rose Wilson is there, and... Jason Todd is there just whining. And about... apparently Tim Drake is also there now. Yes, Tim Drake was introduced in season three. He's like a Batman fanatic. Oh. And he Which like up. okay. Okay. Spoilers for a future probably twenty twenty three episode of this podcast. Um we I am planning in the early stages of planning for a debate. A five-way debate of the five of the five people who have held the Robin mantle, and I get I have been getting a lot of flack from people for saying that Tim Drake is my favorite Robin. Okay, I no, I get it though. Like, he's not my favorite Robin, but he is the most capable. Robin, he's the most capable, and he is the only Robin who deserves to be Batman. Because Dick Grayson could not be Batman. He couldn't. He doesn't have what bruce has he yeah. dick grayson is too much of a like good heart like, yeah he is he is nightwing the only person i think could that could truly be batman is is um uh, uh tim drake tim drake i don't think but i don't, I don't think like him could, being introduced i don't like, like batman Damian. fanatic i guess i like oh I, yeah it's weird I, it's like a electro tasm 2 vibe oh my god hey you want to come to my birthday party batman <laughs> hey hey robin i know that you and batman like are kind of on shaky grounds but could you give him my birthday invite um i invited him i sent him like three invites but they all got sent back all right i'm gonna go um, fall into a pool of electric eels now <laughs> oh my gosh but- no but like I, I, if you need anyone to vouch for any of the Robins in that, I will do it because I, I love every Robin. People. 
I am a <laughs> um, but you know what? Uh, final thoughts. I hesitate to call this story great because I think there. Yeah. I think like the fucked up stuff with Tara. Like it's complex. It's morally gray. It's interesting. I just don't know if I personally resonate with it or vibe with it. Yeah, it's it's tough because. There are a lot of great moments in the story. Like, I talked about the Nightwing stuff, and there's a lot of stuff that's really done well. But it's... And it's going to sound like like kind of um, like a gimme saying it, but it's really, really hard to not, like, look past all of the messed up stuff. Yeah. Um, and all the messed up themes, like the, the, the stuff with minors and... I, stroke it's really hard not to look look past that it's, yeah. it's such an apparent point in the story that it, it's hard for me not to judge the story based on that like it's it's really difficult to to look past it and say oh it was a sign of the times you know i think i think the best adjective to describe this story is significant like yeah I, impactful impactful significant it set the stage for this, the future of this team. Like, right. It set the stage for every piece of Teen Titans media to follow. You get iconic moments throughout this. Um, You get the debut of characters who become huge staples of the Titans mythos. And you get a, you get an exploration into the backstory of one of their most dangerous villains. Yeah and so it's it 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 did a lot for the team and it did a lot for storytelling in the comic book genre in general yeah it's just i think that one of the biggest things is just it didn't age well um it's kind of hard to look past those flaws i think if you're a fan of the teen titans of this era of the titans specifically you should read this story it's but still a fun read. You should read it, but keep in mind these things that do happen in the book. Yeah. Like, like if you're I a think... Teen Titans fan and you're not comfortable with that stuff, just don't read it. You yeah. Know? It's like not if worth you it, but if, if you, you think it, the interpretation fun. of Terra and Slade are better in the 2003 cartoon, that is that is totally your thing. Like mm-hmm. I I think there are a lot there's a lot to like in this story but yeah. you can see its flaws and but but still see why it is significant. Yeah, it's kind of like looking back on anything from the 80s yeah. like writing and storytelling in general has just changed so much that a lot of stuff from the 80s hasn't aged well um not even with like um political correctness but in terms of just like how we tell stories we tell stories in a much more complex manner now um and i think it's just um it's kind of like how i look back on the uh ramita and lee spider-man books Mm -hmm. where it's like the stories aren't great but what they did and the groundwork that they laid um is the biggest takeaway yeah and i think that's the same thing here you know, certain parts of the story, not super cool, but 
what it did for comics and what it did for this team, I think is like the biggest takeaway. I think like if a different writer had maybe come in and given a bit more depth and exploration into Terra as a character, like mm -hmm. I, I want to talk about again, because like the huge debate between the Titans and the uncanny X-Men and like, like if Chris Claremont or Louise Simonson had come in and given like the same elevation to Terra with the characters like they with characters like they had done in the new mutants with like magic yeah. and uh Wolfsbane and these other characters like I think we could have seen the perfect version of this story yeah and and for a lot of people that's the um animated version yeah. um and I think there is a lot of uh validity to that but it would have been nice to have just a little bit more, you know, because there were times where I felt like I should have cared more about certain yeah. things um, because the introduction of Terra comes so soon before the introduction of her being a traitor. Mm -hmm. and it's kind of hard to it's like it's like if in Civil War we found out Spider-Man was a traitor in yeah. regards to what if we found out in Endgame, you know, like it, it's, it, it's kind of like just, again, how they told stories, you know? Yeah. Um, just given a little more would have been nice. I, um, I definitely agree with you there. Jericho's mutton chops aside, I think the art is immaculate. I Beautiful. think, I think Perez, per, there is a reason we have been talking about Perez so much. Uh, oh, he, yeah. he, changed the way comics looked and yeah. in in the same way people like jack kirby and steve ditko did he changed them for the better and i think we are still seeing i think we are still seeing repercussions of what he did to comics yeah and i just think it kind of sucks that he really hasn't gotten the credit he deserves until recently yeah you know because he's done so much before now um, and it's great people are recognizing it now, but he's been doing stuff like this for longer than a lot of people in the industry. Yeah. Um, um he, I believe he it. is retired now, but, um, yeah. he just announced his final signings. I think George Perez, you are great. Um, we, we are going to move George. into the final segment. Um, cast the comic. Um, if you <laughs> had... <laughs> Any ideas for characters you for live action interpretations of this story? Um, right off the bat, I would not like to see this story done in live action. I think, I think we already got a pretty good adaptation of it in the mm. 2003 cartoon. But if I only have one, I only have one, and that's because I want to shout out this actor for what he's already been doing in a DC property. Um, mm. I want to shout out Jovian Wade as um, Cyborg in Doom Patrol right now. He's so uh, good. He is so good. I am still working my way through Doom Patrol, which oh, dude. which sucks because like why I I love Doom Patrol is 
it's this show pretty much borrows heavily from Grant Morrison's run, which it's it's the James Gunn Guardians of the DCEU, and it's so good. I it's love Alan so Tudyk. Good. I love the fact that Alan Tudyk is the narrator in the first episode, and then it's revealed that he's the villain of season yeah. one. I think that's if great. they can all hear the narration. It's so good, man. Um, I love that show. But uh, Jovian Wade as Cyborg. Um, he's great. He does a really good job. Um, yeah. I would also like to, because we are in the wake of another disastrous Joss Whedon interview, again, shout out Ray Dear Fisher. God. I want to shout out Ray Fisher again. Um, he is great. He, he, he deserves his job back. That's, that's what Ray Fisher I think deserves. Like he needs his job back. Cyborg has been the, the live action cyborg adaptations have been great. I think. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And, and Cyborg doesn't play a huge part in this story, but I think you need a you need an actor like Fisher or or uh, I, you need I'm just a... imagining Ray Fisher in the in the panel where Cyborg's trying to learn how to skate is so funny. Wait, no, he would do that so good. <laughs> he he would, would. He would eat that shit up, he dude. Would body he it. would. <laughs> I think. Um, for me, I think one of my biggest castings, and this, granted, is a rumored casting already. Yeah. Um, and it's a really big, like, most people are, like, pretty sure it's going to be confirmed soon. But I love this actor. I love everything he's done. And I love Nightwing. So I'm going to say Dylan O'Brien as Nightwing. This is the casting I have seen the most. He would absolutely murder Nightwing. Um just as I wanted him as Spider-Man, uh, I would have loved to see him as Spider-Man. Oh, Nightwing this would be a, this would be a good place to address my um, Nightwing casting from a couple week from a couple months ago. Um, in a previous episode of Recommended Reading with Jackson Heyman, I jokingly said Nicholas Braun from Succession would be a good Nightwing. I would like to rescind that statement because <laughs> that joke wasn't funny. <laughs> um. Oh my god! Well, because Nicholas Braun is huge. Nicholas Braun is tall, gangly. Could not do Dick Grayson. Yeah, that would be a tough, a tough sell. Idea. Yeah. Um, um, I've I have another one though um, that I would really love to see. Um, I I'm I have to look up his name because I want to make sure I can pronounce it at least a little bit right. Um, so uh, I've I've brought him up before in our last episode uh, about Secret Wars. Um, he was my Doom casting. Oh, um, oh yeah, uh, Nikolai Waldo? Yes, yes. Um, Jamie Lannister, I'll call him. Uh, I would love to see him as Deathstroke. To be honest, I think he would body Deathstroke. Yeah. Oh, I think he could do it. I will. I also, think he could really do again. It. Another person who was really boned by. DC and Warner Brothers with all this shit. Um, Joe Manganello, I think he yep. could have done it. He could he could have bodied Slade. Hearing hearing the plans from him about what Deathstroke was gonna be in the Batman Ben Affleck film, like has me sobbing. Like, <laughs> like, it was it was sounded so like, good. I don't like much of the Zack Snyder stuff. I don't right. like the Snyderverse. I don't like Batman versus Superman. I don't like Man of Steel. I un- I ironically enjoy a lot of the Snyder cut. 
Yeah. But... Yeah. And I'm not one of those, like, restore the Snyderverse bros. Like, I I don't want it. I like the direction they're going with all these uh, not not really interconnected properties. Black Adam. Black Adam. Um, uh, we're getting Blue Beetle. We're getting Batgirl. The Batman. We're getting all these things. Oh, but dude. The Batman. I think... I'm so excited. I would have loved to see how, like, if Justice League had worked... If all of this stuff had worked, if Suicide Squad had worked, I would I would like to see like that universe because <laughs> just to see it, you know, like, we're going to get things like Joe Manganiello's Joe Manganiello as Deathstroke. Um, we were going to get like a, a different Flash movie than what we're getting. Um, it was we going to be um, him versus the rogues. Just a grounded him versus the rogues. Oh my god, we could have gotten the rogues. We could have. It was have... gonna be. I'm pretty sure it was gonna be pretty close to the TV show version. Oh, okay. It was gonna be like Captain Cold, um, his sister. Uh, Lisa Snark, Golden Glider. Best. Yep. Best rogue. Um, Heat Wave, Mirror Master. I think there was one more, but I don't remember. But that was apparently the plan. Um, it would have been great. Doing Flashpoint to reset the DCEU. Um, we could have gotten, and this is my, this is my, this is my, my biggest blow. We could have gotten New Gods directed by Ava DuVernay and, and written by, to be fair, written by Tom King, which, um, spoilers for the next couple of, for the next few months of episodes, we will be talking about Tom King three times in 2022 on recommended reading with Jags and Heyman. The only three good stories of his that I like. Um, but we'll get to that. Um, he we was could pretty have... controversial, wasn't he, with Batman? Um, there's a lot about his Batman run that I do not like. Um, Heroes in Crisis, not a good story. Um, oh, dude, I... Not a fan. <laughs> if um, we want to make an episode about Heroes in Crisis, just about how it was poorly written, let's do it. <laughs> ugh, <no>. um, <laughs> Actually, let's save if, the audience if from having to hear that. If we do a show about bad comics here, then we'll talk about yeah. Heroes in Crisis. <laughs> but, um, but he has written three good things that I really like that are really good that I'm baffled are by the same writer as something like Heroes in Crisis... Um, I will not reveal what those are until we until we get to those episodes. So it'll be a fun little game for everyone to figure out what my three good Tom King stories are. I feel like I know at least one of them, but I'm not gonna say anything. Yeah, don't Even say anything. Suspicion. Don't say anything. The best. <laughs> I'll one. be like, I'll be waiting over like the next few months. Like, when's the next episode? I need to know what 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 the <laughs> what the Every, next one You know is. what? If if people want to know, um, they can keep listening to this podcast. Because I'm that is... pretty sure you've brought it up before. I think you've brought one of them up before. Um, yes, as like one of your um, favorite comics of all time. I will I will secretly tell Eddie after we finish recording what they are. <laughs> but goodbye, everybody. Thank you, Eddie, for coming back onto this episode. Um. You will be back again a couple more times this year. Yes. And also, yes. because so this episode is coming out at the end of February, you have something coming out that we at Mythonomica Productions help produce. 
Oh, yes. Okay, so uh, by the time this episode comes out, uh, it'll have been released already. But um, Jackson and his business partner, Beck, who created this this business that you're listening to now, um, they helped me write and produce my very first audio drama. Uh, it's a Valentine's Day story about the importance of the love of understanding um, through the lens of Spider-Man and the Rhino. Um, and uh, I'm really excited about it. I have some really cool influencers uh, connected to the project that just are killing it right now and i would love it if everybody went and checked it out yeah uh, we've got... i i haven't i've read the i've i've read the script multiple i've read the script through its multiple forms i haven't listened to any of it yet i'm very excited to see where it comes out because this comes <laughs> out at the end this episode we're recording right now comes out at the end of february it'll have already been out for like a week i think yeah I, it comes out I, on the 14th yeah if i check my schedule right um, um I'll have to send it to you. I just got the lines you got, from ooh, Spidey. Hey, from Spidey, yeah. All right. Be on the lookout for that. Yeah. Um, thank you for listening. And remember, while the current Nightwing outfit may be badass, Disco Wing encapsulates the spirit of the 80s. Never Goodbye, forget. everybody. <laughs>